If you have Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the, burn, by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Tim Keller says, a lack of generosity refuses to acknowledge that your assets are not really yours, but God's. We covered that last week. We looked at last week, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you realize that God owns everything, your money, your stuff? It's not ours. It doesn't belong to us. We are a manager. We are a trustee. We are a steward. We're looking this morning at this passage from 2 Corinthians. Now, let's understand a little bit about Corinth. They were, in the ancient world, one of the largest and most cosmopolitan cities in the Roman world. The city was filled with corruption, extremely pluralistic, a very strategic city, and as a strategic city, it was also a very divided city, a very polarized city. There were some that were saying, if you want to see the city be transformed, you must be involved in it, get enmeshed in it. Others were saying, oh no, that dangerous Corinth, you better stay separate in order to preserve purity and holiness. Sounds a little like today, doesn't it? Some folks say, get involved, serve. Others say, whoop, you better back up, build a fence around us. The church at Corinth was also a very gifted and energetic church. Paul had founded this congregation during his second missionary journey. And during his third journey, while he was staying in Ephesus for a period of three years, messengers from Corinth came asking him various questions about various issues that they were struggling with. 
Apparently, the church at Corinth was extremely gifted, very talented, very energetic, but not very mature. There was bickering and infighting. They had moral problems. There were issues concerning the sacraments. They had a general sense of immaturity, as can be seen by their lack of love. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians addressing these issues, and now we're about a year later, and he's writing this second letter to them, expressing his thanksgiving for their response to these issues. Paul is also interested in encouraging the Christians at Corinth to continue their participation in a specific venture. That is to help the poorer Christians who've been affected by a recent famine in Jerusalem. The message of Paul's letter, the message of this passage here, is that God's power is revealed in weakness, not strength. God's power is brought out. God's power is demonstrated. God's power is most clearly seen, not in our being together, not in our being polished, not in having it all together, all right, but in our weakness, in our reliance upon His grace, in our dependence. In a me-first, self-absorbed, self-centered culture, sound familiar? Christians demonstrate the reality of God's grace and power in their lives by excelling in this grace of giving and excelling in this gift of generosity. We're going to look at three areas where Paul is showing us how we may excel in this particular area in our lives. We want to look, first of all, at the example of dynamic grace. Second, the principle of interdependent grace. And third, the motive of gospel grace. Paul says, we want you to know about the grace of God. He teaches us about dynamic grace, interdependent grace, and the motive of gospel grace. First of all, the example of dynamic grace. The contribution to the Christians in Jerusalem had its beginnings earlier when Paul and Barnabas made an agreement with the leaders of the Jerusalem church. The pillars of the Jerusalem church were James, Peter, and John. Paul and Barnabas go, and the book of Galatians kind of highlights this, they go and they make an agreement with these leaders that say, you will minister to the Jewish Christians, we will minister to the Gentile Christians. And there was one condition, because this famine was going on, the one condition was that Paul and Barnabas would make provision from the Gentile churches for the poor among the Christians in Jerusalem. And Paul was eager to keep this commitment. He saw this as a ministry opportunity. And so a year before 2 Corinthians was written, they began this collection. But as so often happens, giving began to tail off. Giving began to wane a little bit. And so in this section of 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9, Paul is encouraging them to complete the task they have begun. Now we learn an incredible amount from how Paul deals with the Corinthians. There is no doubt he wants something specific from them. They made a commitment. He wants them to live up to their commitment. How do you think Paul would go about challenging them to live up to their commitment. I know how I would like to do it. It's easy, right? You committed to this. Let's go. Get up off your, you know what, come on. Right? Good old-fashioned whooping. Come on. We need to. 
That's not how Paul works at all. He doesn't chastise them. He doesn't motivate them out of guilt, out of fear, out of shame, out of pressure. Where does Paul point them? He points them to the realities of the gospel. He says, if giving is just like any other area of your life, it's never going to work by simply trying harder. I mean, how many of us have tried to, how many of us have said, okay, Jeff put together this Bible reading plan at the beginning of the year, community Bible reading, sounds great, we're going to try and stuff. How many of us struggle? Let's be honest. Okay. How many chapters does Ezekiel have? Will we ever be done, Ezekiel? What's going on with this temple and the water's up to his knees? I mean, I don't get... Trying harder just doesn't work, does it? How many of us try to diet? I'm leading the way in that one, right? What do we do? I feel like that's my area all the time of try, fail, repent, try, fail, repent. I feel like it's wash, rinse, repeat. We do it over and over and over again. Say after me, trying harder does not work. In any area, including giving. Look at how Paul goes about it. He's pointing out the realities of the gospel, and the first thing he points out is that the gospel means relationally we belong to one another. We are not independent from each other, but rather we belong to one another. Do you realize, friends, you belong to the same body as those college-age believers at Valdosta State? They are your brothers and sisters. This is bigger than a partnership. This is family. We belong to each other. John and Sarah's ministry is our ministry. And John and Sarah, our ministry is your ministry because we belong to each other. That's a gospel reality, whether you like each other or not. Paul is not saying it depends on your feelings. Oh, you've got to feel all. He's saying this is a reality. And then secondly, he points them to the doctrine of grace. This passage teaches us the centrality of grace. Grace dominates this passage. And one of the first ways he shows us this is by showing the example of the church at Macedonia. Look at how the Macedonians responded to the gospel. Verse 2 says, they were so poor that Paul did not even expect them to participate in the collection. Verse 5 says, they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us. Grace impacted them in their committed self-giving to the Lord and to others. Notice how relational this is. They gave themselves to the Lord as a person and to them. Then in verse 4, this blows me away. They actually pleaded. The text says they begged with Paul for the privilege of sharing in this service to the other believers. I have to admit, that's not a phone call I normally get from anybody. Jeff, the session and you are launching LOPC 2.0. Don't leave us out. We're begging to be a part of it. How often does that happen? But this is how the grace of God impacted the Macedonians. Paul is telling the Corinthians, look at how the gospel has impacted the Macedonians. They are begging 
to be involved in this. Paul's message is simple. The Corinthians, who were relatively speaking rich, rich with blessings, not just monetary, but they had gifts, they had talents, they had knowledge, they had earnestness, had agreed to contribute, but now had stopped. The Macedonians, who were suffering in a severe affliction, the text says, who were poor, begged to contribute and actually did. Why is this? This is the dynamic of grace. This is the reality of grace. This is grace displaying God's uninvited favor towards sinners. They saw themselves not as together. They saw themselves as broken and recipients of the mercy and favor of God. They were blown away that God could say to them, because they're in Christ, you are my sons and daughters. With you I am well pleased. Do we tend to blow off the fact that God says to us, you belong to me, you're my family, you're sons and daughters. With you I am well pleased. Have we grown cold to the fact that the God of the universe can look upon us with favor? And see, what happens is, as grace is shown to them, grace now works in and through them. There's a Croatian writer, his name's Miroslav Volf, and he wrote the following comment. He says, inscribed on the very heart of God's grace is the rule that we can be its recipients only if we do not resist being made into its agents. What happens to us must be done by us. Having been embraced by God, we must make space for others in ourselves and invite them in, even our enemies. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying part of the very definition, part of the very working of grace is that when you receive grace, you will become an agent of grace to others. If, it works, if it's working for you, it's working in and through you. This is the dynamic of grace, grace that has been given to us is also grace that is at work within us. Next, look with me at verse 12 and the principle of interdependent grace. Paul writes, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. Now, what in the world is Paul talking about here? He is saying that the important thing in the exercise of giving is the willingness to share what one has with other people for their good. If it is not for the good of others, if it is not for the flourishing of others, you're doing it for yourself. Tim Keller writes, he says, living is giving. If you spend your money on yourself, you are just surviving. But if you want your life to count, if you want to really live, give. See, what Paul is here is talking about is he's giving a vision of biblical justice. No, not the justice that the world talks about. We're not talking about material equality. We're not talking a redistribution of wealth. He is giving a vision of spiritual equality that is born out of community interdependence. The equality that Paul is speaking of is that according to the varying resources of each, 
We've all been gifted in different ways. Remember, we don't own anything. Anything we have is a gift of God. God is the owner of everything. And anything we have is a gift of God. And so according to the varying resources of each, there should be an equal willingness to give so that one person does not coast at the expense of the too great sacrifice of another. Now what Paul is referring to, what he's alluding back to here, is the Exodus. And he's quoting specifically from Exodus chapter 16 and verse 18. He's recollecting the Lord's provision of manna in the wilderness. That by God's miraculous working, those who had little and those who had plenty, both had enough. Both had sufficient. Everyone had as much as they needed. See, Paul's point is that wherever God's people, however well or poorly endowed, are prepared to use their gifts and resources willing, willingly, there will be fairness, there will be justice, there will be equality, there will be no injustice. Some have more, some have less, all have enough. You know why? Because they're viewing their stuff as not their own. They're viewing their possessions as not their own. That is why this is not about a matter of how much one gives. This has zero to... That's why notice this whole sermon, I'm not going to mention tithing. Tithing simply is about an amount. The Bible is talking about faith and love and grace. This is a matter of the heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want us, like Paul wanted the Corinthians, to experience this joy. The application for us is simple. Search our conscience with God to ensure that some fellow Christian is not having to do more or pay more in the community of believers because we selfishly are doing less or paying less than we could. We must realize that we belong to one another so that even, even how we spend our money, even how we use our resources, have an impact on the rest of the community. We may not intend it or not, but how you use your time, your talents, and treasures, does, because we're interdependent. We may claim to be independent, but that goes against reality. We are interdependent. So lastly, and aren't you glad I'm not coughing yet? Because now we get to the punchline. I've given you the hard news. How do we put this together? What is the motive of gospel grace? We've seen the dynamic of grace. We've seen the principle of interdependent grace. What is the motive of gospel grace? Well, look with me at the example of Christ. Paul gave the example of the Macedonians. Now he's going to give the example of Christ. And look with me at verse 9. And verse 9, the session asked me to preach two sermons on stewardship. I think I could have preached five sermons on just verse 9. Because verse 9, look at this definition of grace and the gospel of grace. Paul says, and right after he says, I write this not as a command. Of course he doesn't write it as a command because he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Take a look at this. Though he was rich... That has got to be the understatement of the world. 
There's part of me that wants to read this and say, oh, Paul, though he was rich, the Bible only says, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. How rich was Jesus? Oh, he only owns everything. He only owns the air, the molecules, the atom, our breath, everything. The word that says was here, though he was rich, is used as a present participle, indicating that he being rich. Philippians 2 kind of forms a good commentary on this, where it says Jesus being in very nature God, in his essential being, Jesus was all that God was. Do we recognize, friends, that everything we have is a gift? You know, one of the common objections that's often given in terms of giving of money and giving of resources is kind of along the lines of, I work hard for my money. Well, yes, you do. No question. But do you recognize who gave you the ability to work hard if you work hard? Who gave you the opportunities that you have? Who gave you the brains that you have? If you have the skill and the brains to be able to work whatever job, who are you dependent upon for everything you have? Though he was rich, what did Jesus do with his riches? He became poor. Paul writes to the Philippians, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus emptied himself of everything. Though he was rich, he became poor. He voluntarily gave it away. Friends, this is true power. Oftentimes it said money is power. No. True power is when you give power away. True power is when you give power away and no one does like that like Jesus, saying then for your sake so that you through his poverty might become rich. Do we understand what it means to be rich? I mean really rich. See, think about it. I pay quarterly taxes. So I pay taxes in January, April, September, January. So recently, a month ago, I paid my quarterly taxes. I would love to get a letter from the IRS, not that kind of letter, but a letter from the IRS that says, you are debt free. Keep your money. You don't have to pay taxes this quarter. I'd be jumping up and down, but I would still not be rich. The gospel defines us as having all the riches of the United States Treasury. Because the gospel says not only I love the fact that John in Sunday School, and if you missed Sunday School, I'm sorry you missed it because he gave a great presentation. And I love how he brought out that one of the things they're teaching on the college campus is the differences between justification and sanctification. Do you know what justification means? It means God has made a declaration that not only are you forgiven. That's debt free. We are forgiven. The scriptures say as far as the east is from the west, so far have your sins been removed from you. In a sense, do you have to give? No, you're debt free. But the rest of justification says, because you are in Christ, you are clothed, you are covered, you are filled 
with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That God sees you as having this filter over you, and it's called the righteousness of Jesus. That means the gospel is telling us that Jesus got everything we deserve so that we would get everything he deserved. He gets treated as if he were us, and we get treated as if we were him. Now think about that. We live like we're paupers, spiritually seeking. This is a rather lengthy quote, forgive me, but it's a good one. Tim Keller talks about the eternal value of giving to what will truly last. And he writes, he says, listen, friends, only one billionth of your entire existence is going to be spent here on earth. Do you understand that? When the sun is so old it dies, we're all going to be around to see that. The real question is, are you putting the power of your money into things that will outlast the sun? Most of the things we put our money into are going to burn up with it. But people who don't die, and the work of the Lord, and the word of God, which doesn't pass away, if you put your money into people, into the work of the kingdom, the things that your owner says you should put your money into, and you get rid of your thievery or your stinginess, you will find you're putting your money into things that last. One billionth of our entire existence is going to be spent here on earth. What are we putting our resources into? We live like we're paupers, spiritually seeking, when speaking, when we have been given the grace of God, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the motive and the power of gospel grace. It is the only thing that will transform us. It is the only thing that will change us. Trying harder, making new plans, working hard, won't work. Having our hearts gripped by the fact that though he was rich, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Friends, if you are a Christian, whether you have one dollar or a trillion dollars, you are the richest person on the face of the earth because you have the riches of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.